So our, our text this morning, looking at verses 1 through 14, uh, I want to break it up into two sections. Looking at verses 1 through 6, we'll see that Jesus leaves. And finally, in verses 7 through 14, we'll see that Jesus loves. And so again, verses 1 through 6, Jesus leaves, and Jesus loves in, in verses 7 through 14. And so this passage starts off with the, with the Pharisees having a problem on their hands. Uh, what they've come to realize and what Jesus ha- has come to the knowledge of, that they know that the fame of Jesus and those that are being baptized and made disciples are uh, are eclipsing those of John. And so they had, they had a problem on their hands with John and his preaching and baptizing. Now Jesus is on the scene, and it's even more. And so the grip, uh, the religious grip that the Pharisees had on the Jews is beginning to slip uh, even more. And so Jesus, seeking to avoid any uh, controversy with the Pharisees and knowing that his time of death was not was not at the, at the appointed time. He decided to leave and return to Galilee. We see in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Now, there were many routes from Judea uh, going down uh, to Galilee, but the, the shortest route was the route taken through Samaria. And so one of the things I, I think it's a good question to ask here, is John merely... Uh, just describing how Jesus arrived in Samaria, or is there more to what John is saying when he uses the phrase, Jesus had to? Scholars have have argued on either side of this. I I think there's some encouragement in this phrase, he had to. I think what we see here is that all of Jesus's life and ministry was used in revealing who Jesus is and the kingdom of God. Even Jesus leaving Judea and being tired had a purpose for ministry. Jesus submitted his whole life, uh, every, every step he took, everything he did was submitted to the will of the Father. Nothing Jesus did was wasted. And so Jesus, the God-man, was tired and thirsty, and this too was used to display him as the Messiah, God's anointed one. We can be encouraged that just like with Jesus, our lives aren't just happenstance. Every detail of our life has significance and ultimately uh, will be used for the glory of God, especially in our salvation. This is what Paul declares in Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, where it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Where you grew up, where you went to school, all those details have significance because God doesn't waste time or any of the occurrences in our lives. And so we can be sure, just like with Jesus' ministry here to the Samaritan woman, that all of these things are according to God's plan. Now, before we move into this second portion, the, the, the heart of the matter. We're going we're to get to the woman in the water. I know it's what we're all waiting for. I, I think we need to do a, a brief uh, history lesson on the Jews and the Samaritans to kind of get a context for what Jesus and, and this Samaritan woman are, are, are in. 
And so if you have time this week or today even, uh, it'd be beneficial to read 2 Kings 17. This is where we, we get the, the backdrop of the Samaritans and, and the Jews. Uh, in 2 Kings 17, you have uh, Hosea as, as king, and the Assyrians invade Samaria. And most of the Jews were taken to Assyria, not all, some were left behind. And what happened was that the Assyrians repopulated Samaria. And so now you have this inter, intermarrying with the Jews that are there, and, they cre- and what came of that is what the Jews called, or what they referred to as essentially a, a, a mongrel uh, race of Jews, kind of a half-breed of, of Jews. And so it's interesting as you read through that, these Samaritans feared, the, the, the scripture said that they feared the Lord and worshiped the gods of, of Assyria, which is something that's, uh, for me, very alarming when you see this, uh, this blending. It, it said that they actually feared the Lord and worshiped idols. That's, that's something that's rare that you see in the scriptures, and obviously that's not a good thing. And, and how, they, how they got to that point when the, when the Assyrians moved into, into Samaria, uh, they, you know, they practiced all the idol worship and, and lions would, would come and devour the people in the city. And word got back uh, to the king of Assyria and the, 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 the advice was send somebody back, send a Jew, send one of the Jews back to come and teach them the statues of the people that used to live there so that these lions will stop devouring us. And so they did. They sent someone back and they taught them, you know, the ways of the Lord. And instead of being faithful to that, they just blended their worship. And so by the time you get to Ezra, now you have Jews relocating back to the area and, and the temple is being built. And one of the things you see in the book of Ezra is that they're not even, they're not even referred to as Samaritans. They're referred to as adversaries. And so you read Ezra they're, they're rebuilding the temple, and the Samaritans come and say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're cousins, we're kinfolk, we worship the same God as you, you know, let us, let's do this thing together. And the Jews decided not to do that and told them, we ha- you have no part of this, you know, basically get out of our face, pretty much. And what that led to was the Samaritans building their own temple uh, for worship. Years later, uh, the Jews would destroy the Samaritans' temple. And so, again, you, you, you see there, there's religious, cultural, ethnic uh, strife and beef between the Jews and the Samaritans. To, to get a picture of just what the Jews thought of Samaritans, when, when the Jews wanted to insult Jesus in, in John 8, 48, it says... The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so this is, this is how much they, this is how low they thought of Samaritans. They used that term to, to disrespect Jesus, um, if you will. And so this is the backdrop that Jesus enters in when he's dealing with the Samaritan woman. And so as we look at verses 7 through 14, we see uh, that Jesus loved the Samaritan woman. And so because of the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus takes an unusual approach with this Samaritan woman. It has been said that there are two ways to build a relationship with someone. You offer to serve them or you give them an opportunity to serve you. 
Jesus initiates the conversation with this woman by revealing his humanity and his need for water. Jesus positions himself as vulnerable and in need to this Samaritan woman. What's amazing is that this, this isn't a trick. That Jesus isn't thinking, okay, I'll do this so that, you know, we can, we can get this conversation started. He was actually thirsty. He wasn't, he wasn't making it up. He was actually thirsty and in need of water. And so when dealing with dealing with this Samaritan woman, Jesus used his humanity, his humanity to bring her near to him. Throughout the history of the church, many have engaged in debate on the nature of Jesus being God and man. And we don't have time this morning to walk through all the debates on the hypostatic union, the combination of, of Jesus in two natures, but it's worth noting when we see the humanity of Jesus being used to bring people to salvation. The scriptures aren't lying when they say that Jesus was tired and thirsty. And this should be encouraging to us in this, that Jesus truly knows our sorrows and griefs. So when he invites us to come and drink, it comes from a true place because he knows what it means to be tired and thirsty. It comes with a true knowledge. It is interesting to note that the only other time that we see Jesus being thirsty is on the cross. As a, as a side note, if you want more on the connections of Jesus and his thirst, there's a book Pastor Carter and Elder uh, Lee, Lee Fowler wrote, and there's a chapter on there on being refreshed. So just a plug for the book. Check that out. And so Jesus is, is engaging with this Samaritan woman on the basis of, of his humanity. And so her, her response to Jesus' question uh, she responds in such a way that, that's interpreted as uh, kind of a high, high and mighty position. She asks, uh, she asks Jesus this question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a, a woman of Samaria? She mentions that, that, G, that Jews have no dealings with, Samar with uh, Samaritans. And to under, under better understand what dealings means here, she's She's not referring to business transactions because the disciples had went into the city to buy food. So she's not speaking merely of we don't even do business together. Some, some scholars and, and, and translators of the text would suggest that what should, maybe possibly should have been uh, inserted there is that Jews and Gentiles don't use utensils together. And in fact, that there was actually a, a law against Jews and Samaritans uh, using the same eating utensils. And so what Jesus is doing by positioning himself as vulnerable and, and in need, asks her to engage with him outside of the normal protocol. This is significant to highlight because what it says is that Jesus is more concerned about her soul than with the, the, the beef that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is this is so strange that it, it begs the question of what are you doing? This is, this is, this is kind of how she approaches it. Like, what are you doing? You, you know the tension that's between us. I'm a woman. You know how society treats women. I'm amazed you even acknowledge me walking up to this well. What, what, are you, what are you getting at here? What are you really asking? In her, in her normal soundtrack of life, it, this was equivalent to the record skipping or, or the tape stopping. 
whatever she was thinking about in her mind, Jesus asking her this question got her full attention. So I, I think it's helpful before we walk through the rest of this narrative to, to make some comparing and, and contrasting with how Jesus deals with this woman and how he deals with Nicodemus in chapter 3. We see uh, in Jesus' ministry an important statement that's being made with how he deals with them. And so uh, looking back at Nicodemus, we see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Jesus met her in the daytime. Nicodemus had a high moral standing. He was a, he was a Pharisee. This Samaritan woman was, was of low reputation. Nicodemus was a man. This was a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus initiated this conversation with Jesus. Jesus initiated the conversation with her. What's, it's, it's worth being noted here that Nicodemus initiated a conversation with Jesus. Jesus was more direct with him. He got straight to the point. We're not going to do all these pleasantries about me being a good teacher. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. With this Samaritan woman, Jesus, uh, he sought her. He, he wooed her. He used, um, he used his humanity to bring her close. And what's being communicated here is that Jesus came to save. And it matters not whether you're in a high standing or you have low reputation. Jesus came to save any and all. Jesus can save anyone. This is what is being represented here in his ministry. And so when you, when you think of how you came to know Christ, it was God that initiated a relationship with you. She did not know him. She did not know that she needed to know him. She knew nothing about Jesus, but Jesus came and sought her. And so wherever you, you find yourself in life, Nicodemus would have certainly thought himself to be better than this Samaritan woman. And he would have gave himself some points in that, I came to Jesus. Jesus didn't have to come to me. But when we think about uh, Jesus' ministry, for all of us, he traveled the same distance in that he came from heaven down to earth. And so we're all flat in our need and, and, and uh, grace of mercy from God. So getting, getting back into our, our narrative, looking at verse 10, Jesus responds to a question by immediately changing the conversation from physical need to spiritual need. He introduces God into the conversation and himself by mentioning the gift of God. And so the question is for us this morning, what is the gift of God? You can read Romans 5. It gives, some, some, uh, it gives a little bit of content on the gift of God. But in, in order to save a little time this morning, we'll just get to Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This reminds me of the tax return commercial that, I, that we see on TV now where they say free for free, free, free. <laughs> the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I always, it sticks out to me that it says free gift as if any gift that you get you pay for. It's, it's a free gift. It's, it's, 
It's overemphasizing the fact that God has given this to you. You don't have to pay for it. And Jesus introduces himself that he, he has access to this living water. This Samaritan woman, her response shows that she's still thinking in, in the natural when she mentions that you don't have anything to draw water with and, and the well is deep. How, how are you going to get to this living water? And so biblical scholars uh, report that this well would have likely been over 200 feet deep, according to them. And at the bottom of this well would be a spring of, of water bubbling up. And so when you're drawing water, you're not going all the way to the bottom. You're just getting, you know, you're getting what you need from the top and you, and you move on. And so, again, she's still thinking on the natural. There's, yeah, there's living water in this well, but you're not going to get to it. and You don't have access to it because you don't have anything to get it out with. This living water, this concept of living water is representative of, of God's blessing and, and what he's going to provide for his people throughout Scripture. We see this in Isaiah uh, chapter 12 and verse 3, where it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Revelation 7 and 17 also says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so in, in introducing uh, God and himself into the conversation, he's definitely either equating himself with God or he's saying, I'm more important than you, than you think. And so this Samaritan woman picks up on this idea when she asks this question, are you saying that you're greater than Jacob? Jacob, our father, gave us this well. Are you saying that you're greater than him? What Jesus says next in this passage is a glorious message of the gospel. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, I don't know how many of you have had spring water before. I've had the, the uh, blessing, the opportunity to do that growing up. Growing up in Mississippi, I remember um, being a kid and we had a, a rare winter snowstorm. Uh, snowed like maybe 10 inches a foot. And so, I mean, you know, we're in the South. We don't deal with snow, so everything shut down. Uh, our, our, water, our water pipes froze in the house and, and all that sort of thing. And so um, there was a spring in the, in the woods in our backyard. And so um, my granddad and I, we got buckets. We went out to it. It's frozen, has, you know, layers of ice on it. But, you know, we chip away, we chip away, and eventually... This, this water from the spring comes up. We fill our buckets with it, and I was able to just kind of scoop my hand in there and get a sip of this water, and man, I was like, what in the world have we been doing? I mean, this, to this day, I haven't had water. It just, it's like, why don't we use this all the time? Like, why does it have to be snow for us to figure out that we got all this good water back here? And so in, in that brief moment, I experienced a little bit of what Jesus is mentioning here in that, man, this water is so good. I don't, I don't want any other water ever. Like, this is, this is where we need to stay. And so for us, the, the, where I grew up, we couldn't drink the water that we had in the plumbing. It tastes terrible. It was, it was bad. And so we used to 
we used to travel uh, uh, to the next county uh, to my uncle and my grand grandma's house and carry jugs. And we just get jugs and jugs and jugs of water probably every other week for, for drinking and cooking and stuff like that. And so to have this snowstorm and then now realize like we, we got all this great water in the, in the backyard, like we need to tap into this. Now we didn't do that. We, you know, we went back to the old system. But to, to find a source of water that you know is good and that tastes good is one thing. But what Jesus is saying here is something altogether foreign to the Samaritan woman and any, anyone else apart from faith. In regards to the, to the thirst of our souls, what Jesus is saying here is that there is a once and for all drinking from him that leads to sal- salvation and eternal life. Jesus is saying that your soul thirsts because of sin in such a way that it cannot be satisfied by any physical water. And that he has the spiritual water that quenches our soul's thirst. Now this is, this is remarkable for us that have come to know Jesus. This is a freeing statement because what Jesus is saying here is something that we can't, we can't naturally believe. Jesus is saying that Spiritually, there's a water that comes from me that quenches your thirst forever. Without faith, it's impossible to believe this. Nothing in our natural world works this way. We constantly need refilling, refueling. We're, constant in, we're constantly in search of something to, to fill us. We drink from the well of sin. Some drink from the alcohol bottle, searching for peace at the bottom of that bottle. We drink from the water of despair. The list goes on and on and on. We constantly need nourishment and refreshment. So while this is a simple and glorious truth, our flesh in this world makes this hard to believe. Is this really true, Jesus? Is, like, what are you saying, that we can drink something once and for all and have our thirst, like, done away with? Is that true? I think this is important for us Christians to, to, to ponder this and to meditate on this in our fight against sin. The temptation of sin to us is to say, you're thirsty, try this. You're thirsty, try that. For, for those of us who don't, for, for those that don't know Christ, what makes sin impossible to say no is because you are thirsty. For the Christian, when temptation says that you're thirsty, you can respond with, my soul isn't thirsty. How can I be thirsty when I have Christ leading me to springs of eternal life? How can I be thirsty when what I have within me welling up is a spring leading to eternal life? So no, I'm I'm not thirsty, I'm full. This is is how we can fight sin with this this morning. By trusting in, in God's word, by faith, to know that we are full in Christ. Christ and his living water are what we need to quench the alluring uh, thirst of sin. What Jesus offers this Samaritan woman is himself. Jesus is offering himself and saying, I got what you need. You came here looking for water, but what you really need is me. And this is the offer that he extends to us this morning. Come, drink. We get to experience throughout life all those who have, have drank from Jesus is the daily living out of this reality that my soul is satisfied in Jesus. And at times, what Jesus does in the life of of a believer is to take away people, 
places and things to show us and to force us to realize that he is really all that we need. Jesus offers this living water for us on the cross. Consider John 19 and 34, where it says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and, and at once there came out blood and water. Christ on the cross is offering this living water to us. Christ offers himself as the only one that can quench the thirst for our soul. And one thing I can say is I've tried him, and he's never let me down. I've been faithless, but Jesus has been faithful. Jesus has been good to me. The Bible ends with this, invita this invitation to come and to drink. Revelation 22 and verse 17 speaks to us this morning. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hear, hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Christ has come to us this morning, bidding us to come. The question for you uh, and all of us this morning is, what are we thirsty for? Are our souls thirsting for Christ? Again, this is, this is something we must believe by faith, that what Christ offers is actually enough. You can stop your searching and trust in the living water that Christ provides. Let's pray.